The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hello, everybody. This is Glenn Lowry. You've tuned in to The Glenn Show. Uh, I teach uh, at Brown University, where I'm the Merton Stoltz Professor of the Social Sciences. And I'm also a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, uh, which sponsors The Glenn Show. Uh, I'm with David Kaiser, who's a historian uh, and uh, retired from the Naval War College. Do I get that correct, David? That is correct, yes. Professor Emeritus at the Naval War College. Yeah. Uh, and a uh, prolific writer. Uh, let me mention a few of his books. Uh, books about the history of warfare and diplomacy, uh, economic diplomacy and the origin of the Second World War, uh, politics and war, European conflict from Philip II to Hitler, uh, American tragedy, Kennedy Johnson and the origins of the Vietnam War. Uh, he's uh, written about the assassination of JFK. He's written about the Sacco Vanzetti. Uh, case. Uh, he has a couple of books on uh, professional sports, uh, baseball greatness, uh, the best players in teams according to wins above average. I'm interested in that. Is that a money ball kind of? Uh, in a take? way, it, it's a particular statistical analysis uh, that does have implications for money ball kinds of issues. Yeah. I'd be interested in knowing about that. Uh, NFL 1965, the most exciting season. Uh, I was there. I was in Chicago, yeah. uh, a 17-year-old pup in 1965. Uh, I, I remember that season. Um, and he also has a memoir, Life in History, uh, which he and I have discussed here uh, That's at right. the Glenn Show some time ago. So uh, we've become friends, uh, David, and I'm proud to be able to say that. Uh, welcome back to the Glenn Show. Thank you, Glenn. I am also proud to be your friend, and uh, it's great to be here for the third time, I believe. I think I neglected to mention the most recent book, States of the Union. Uh, and uh, there it is, <laughs> a history of the United States through presidential addresses from 1789 right on up until 2023. Uh, that's just off the presses, so to speak. And uh, David is anxious for you to take a look if you're so inclined. I endorse that uh, sentiment entirely. Uh, so Thank thanks. David, we we overlap, man. We're we're of a similar age. Yep. <laughs> we came along <laughs> roughly the same time, the late seventies right. and the early eighties, with our PhDs and our positions in uh, Cambridge uh, as young. Oh yes, oh yes, professors associated and, with that eminent, much in the news institution, Harvard uh, University. That yep. would be Harvard <laughs> University. <laughs> yes. Right. Yep. Uh, so I moved to ask you. Uh, are you worried about the reputation of, of our uh, alma mater? I am uh, a honorary degree recipient from Harvard. I was educated at Northwestern University right. and MIT. I didn't actually get a degree from Harvard. But yeah. when I became a faculty member at Harvard, they uh, endowed me with an honorary degree. So I'm on the mailing list. Huh. Okay. But, uh, everybody knows that the president has, uh, Claudine Gay, uh, been, in effect, forced out over uh uh, allegations about plagiarism and over dissatisfaction with her dealing with the problem of anti-Semitism in the wake of the conflict in the Middle East that has uh, broken out. Yeah. Uh, wh what do you make of what's going on over there? Well, Claudine Gay is a symptom, not a cause, of what's gone wrong in Harvard. And um, the situation in Harvard wouldn't be different if she'd had a different career, if she'd never been at Harvard. Whatever. Glenn, the whole situation at Harvard and in academia in general, for me, is very painful to contemplate. Now, I arrived at Harvard as an undergraduate in 1965 and uh, got my history degree, spent a couple of years fulfilling my obligation to the U.S. Army, among other things, returned as a grad student for five years, 
write my dissertation, and I was a faculty member for four years. And all of that is described in great detail in my autobiography, A Life in History. And I love the place very much. It made me what I am. To be a faculty member, even for only four years, was a great privilege. Now, in the subsequent 40-plus years, uh, Harvard and academia in general have moved away from their traditions. That's particularly true in the humanities, such as history and literature. And uh, they have declined, Harvard and all the leading institutions, and, and declined very badly from an intellectual point of view. I think they've gone fundamentally off the track. And this is part of the reason they're in trouble now. You can see in many things Claudine Gay said as president, and in many things people constantly say at Harvard, that their view of their mission has changed completely. In my opinion, the traditional mission of a university is to pass on acquired knowledge and develop new knowledge and equip students with that knowledge. Now, students may want to use that knowledge to change the world in their subsequent careers, and that's great, and more power to them. But now we have a whole higher educational establishment that's convinced itself that its mission is to change the world, both within the institution and in other ways, and to teach a certain set of values that are going to help change the world. And when you adopt that position, you are inevitably corrupting your intellectual mission. You are ruling certain kinds of conclusions out of order. And you have had many guests here of many different kinds who have talked about that, uh, what the results of that are. Uh, and uh, you are also, speaking as a historian, and this is part of what I'm trying to fix with this book, you're robbing your students of their birthright, which is a genuine knowledge of their extraordinary past. Because instead, I, I mean, the, the main historical perspective that dominates today really holds that Western civilization before 1968 or so was distinguished mainly by its hopeless racism and sexism. And that therefore, it, it doesn't need to be taken seriously except as an example of what we shouldn't do. And that's why we're so busy, you know, appointing committees to make lists of the Harvard faculty members in the 17th and 18th centuries who owned slaves, you know, a few slaves each, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, they did, okay? That was part of the culture, but that was not what made Harvard important then or at any time later. Yes, Harvard didn't have full equality for female students until the last few decades, although they, they had Radcliffe's, and, and actually Radcliffe students were listening to Harvard faculty by the 1900s. Um, no, they didn't treat women equally, but they were maintaining and expanding the intellectual history of the West, which is what universities are supposed to do. And, and again, they, they have lost track of that mission. And what has come out in the current crisis, which isn't a surprise really to people who've been watching, is that Harvard is really defined, I think, now by its relationship to our economic and political and social elite. And it, it, it depends on the economic elite, the financial elite for money that it has to have every year. It, its main social function, I'm sorry to say, is to supply the elite members of the financial community of all the professions, etc. And it has adopted for itself the mission of deciding who among young people are going to be in that elite. And that's very far from the original educational mission or the um, mission which I discovered and was lucky enough to participate in for close to 15 years uh, in the late 60s and 70s. Uh, and it's very sad, and I think because Harvard has so much money and all the elite institutions have so much money and, and they can live on their reputations, it's going to be very hard for the necessary reforms to take place there. They're much more likely to occur at smaller, lesser known institutions or maybe even new institutions like, like the new University of Boston. I mean, there's a good deal more I can say, but those are my main thoughts about the situation. Uh, and I'm, at any rate, the current controversy is opening the door to a lot of what's going on. And a lot of people 
are, are paying attention. Fareed Zakaria, for instance, did a very fine yeah, five-minute clip. Yes. That's, he, he was right. Everything he said was right. And I'm glad this audience got to see that. Yeah. Well, it's a couple of things. One is about elitism. You say these are elite institutions and you indict them, and yet you indict them precisely for abandoning the standards of elite intellectual endeavor, it seems to me, that they ought to be adhering to. They ought to be willing to declare greatness of human achievement, even if it yes. comes out of the West. They, they, ought to, they ought to be willing to pass on this heritage that we are, uh, that is our bequest of our forebears, forefathers, I almost said, God help me, uh, who, who, you know, who scaled heights and who opened vistas and, and who revolutionized ways of thinking and, and who posed profound questions. So that is the elitism that they ought to be adhering to. And yet there's a kind of luxury belief elitism, a, a kind of faddish, cliquish, uh, I, I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but I, I sense a kind of social elitism, which the signature uh, indicator of which is adherence to uh, a kind of, I'm going to use the word woke, progressivism uh, uh, about, uh, about social issues. And it, they, they, so they've lost their way. Do, do you disagree with that? I would not use the same words that you use, okay? I, I don't regard the great achievements of Western civilization, the great historical achievements, the, the, the great literary achievements, or let's say the great architectural achievements, okay? To, to feel awe in the presence of the Capitol building in Washington or, uh, you know, Notre Dame in Paris or whatever, that to me is not elitism. That is something that anybody can feel and that all kinds of people have felt and do feel. And, and actually, Glenn, and, and I'm curious as to your reaction to this. I, I mean, I've had some varied experiences in my life. I spent a little time in the U.S. Army, only four months of active duty, but six months in reserves. And I was a cab driver for a while um, in Cambridge. And I am firmly convinced that the genuine intellectuals among us are scattered just about at random within our society, honestly. And, and the great thing is they recognize each other right away, no matter who they are. But these are just naturally curious people. And, I have and, to tell you. I'm yeah, sorry, go sure. ahead. Go for it. No, go for it. Yeah. No, I was going to tell you a story <laughs> uh, about this guy uh, who... I met when I was working in a factory in Chicago as a young kid who had dropped out of college. Ed Faulkner is his name. God, I hope he's still living, although he was 10 years older than me and he may not be. But in any case, the long and short of it is, he walked around the shop floor at a printing plant factory where I was a clerk. Yep. With a dog-eared copy of Franz Fanon's Wretched of the <laughs> Earth tucked into his back pocket. Okay. It's black yes. guy. Right. Wore, uh, the T-shirts with the biceps bulging and the cigarette pack folded up in the, in the arm of the T-shirt. And he was an aspiring printer at a printing plant. He wanted to learn the craft. And he did That's learn right. it. And he became a member of the union and he prospered. But he and I used to use our coffee breaks to play chess, to, to talk about Stokely Carmichael and company. Uh, and about uh, the revolutions all all throughout the uh, colonial uh, collapsing colonial hegemonies uh, throughout the uh, south of uh, of the globe, he was an intellectual. <laughs> with, right. Without yeah. any without any yeah. question, he was an intellectual, uh, but he didn't have a degree to his name. Well, I I remember vividly another cab driver, who at this point was in his early thirties. This was in Cambridge. He was Portuguese American, and there were a lot of those in Cambridge at that point high school education, and he loved Greek mythology. He, he couldn't get enough of it, and he would talk about it at the drop of a hat. But, but he was curious about everything, and I, I don't know what happened to him later in life, but uh, I hope that he was able to use those talents to some extent. And yeah. Um, Harvard Corporation uh, yes. chose Claudine Gay as the candidate to replace Lawrence Bacow as president of the university. She had been dean of the faculty. You remember Henry Rosofsky, I'm sure. Sure. Oh, sure. An economic historian who was a grizzled, hardened, white male 
technocrat kind of guy who, uh, well, when we, I came to Harvard, me. we might also add Jewish refugee from Poland. Oh, let's who, not forget that. And who escaped the Holocaust by the skin of his teeth. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, and who held sway over Harvard uh, Faculty of Arts and Sciences for decades uh, yep. and had a tremendous impact on the intellectual character of the enterprise. And, you know, what do I want to say here? I want to say Claudine Gay is no Henry Wysocki. And in saying that, I, I cringe a little bit because it, it feels churlish somehow. I mean, it, it feels like a, sh a cheap shot. And yet it seems patently also to be the case. And I wonder how the corporation could have failed to notice that. Or are they not looking for Henry Wysocki's anymore? They're not looking for Henry Wysocki, but I want to go further back than that. The Harvard that I entered in 1965 had been created, not by its current president, but by James Bryan Conant, who was one of the great educators of the 20th century. It had a general education program, courses in humanities, social sciences, natural sciences, which were simply distinguished by the quality of the people who taught them. Every freshman had to take one in each group. Um, the, and, and Conant had hired people from other universities for the main reason that they would teach one of those courses. You That's mean the, the Harvard faculty of, wasn't up to it? He wanted the best people. He wanted David Reisman, for instance. That was one of those. Right. Now, nobody makes a hire like that anymore. Nobody hires anybody because of the teaching they're going to do, as, as I found out in my own career, that's for sure. And, and, and not only that, Glenn, Harvard, like any great institution at that point, and for decades later, was marketing a distinct educational experience, a distinct educational product. For instance, we had the fall term lasting until mid-December of it wasn't over in mid-December. We went home, we came back, we had two or three weeks of reading period. Reading period was when you caught up on all the reading you hadn't done. And take it from me, and all my classmates will tell you the same thing. You found out what you were made of intellectually and what you were capable of during reading period. I mean, I did, and a lot of other people did. And then you had exams in short breath. And then the spring term was the same. And that, that was a great system. Now, what happened, and this was about 20, this is around uh, 20 years ago. The administration starts saying, our students don't like this. All their friends have their exams done by Christmas. They don't. With the implication that if we don't change this, not as many people will apply to Harvard. Okay? To which I would have replied, so okay. what? He right. <laughs> if they don't want it, fine. We're not going to have a shortage of people applying, sports fans. Let's be real here. Let's get the people who want what we have to offer. And I know this from friends of mine, the, the older faculty who had been Harvard undergraduates argued violently against this for the same reasons I am. And not only were they over rules, but they had it thrown in their faces and faculty means, oh, you're just nostalgic. You just wanted to be the way you were. So reading period was done away with and no longer exists. And they're not, our, they're not offering a distinct intellectual product anymore. And I'm, I'm not aware of any Ivy League college that is, really. And the colleges that still are, like the University of Chicago and a few of the smaller ones, actually yeah. the most noteworthy ones are the St. John's colleges. Yeah. Very few are offering something distinct. And, and that's just tragic. Yeah. Yep. Now, uh, former President Claudine Gay was also accused of not handling well the uh, disputes and disputation that uh, broke out after the October 7th terrorist attack by Hamas on southern Israel and the reactions and support of the Palestinians that uh, erupted uh, on college campuses, which sometimes bordered or crossed over into anti-Semitic uh, expression, Jewish students of feeling uh, injured and unsafe and unwelcome and so on. And that's a that's kind of a piece of it, isn't it? I mean, that, that those two things go together in a way. Her the charges about plagiarism, uh, which are a kind of uh, feet of clay on the question of the intellectual heft 
of the president, but also uh, her uh, willingness to readiness to uh, give voice to certain values in, in the context of a of a very difficult uh, conflict in uh, the Middle East. What do you make of that? Well, I think the big problem is the feeling that university presidents have to take a stand on something like the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. In my opinion, that is not their job. Now, now Glenn, I'm going to toss this right in your face, although I'm paying you a compliment. You, in this very week, put out your talk with Omar Bartov, a very fine historian and a very courageous man, in my opinion. Now, I think... I know there are clearly people who won't like that discussion. I think that any reasonable person who listens to that discussion will have to appreciate that the rights and wrongs of this conflict, and particularly of the way the conflict is being fought, are not straightforward. There is plenty of room for disagreement among reasonable people. There is plenty of room for severe criticism of the Israeli government, which does not equate to anti-Semitism, in my opinion. I mean, Omar Bartov happens to be one of many Jews who are more than willing to, to voice that criticism and, and who, in fact, feel the criticism all the more intensely because they're Jews and, and because this is not their idea of what Judaism is about. So uh, now there's another dimension to this, namely that support for Palestine in opposition to Israel has been one of the knee-jerk reactions of the woke culture, which has a lot of adherence on campus. And, and, and that's just a fact. But uh, I, I don't think that uh, she should have made any statement about the rights and wrongs of, 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 of any of it. I mean, obviously, we all condemn the, the cruelties of Hamas, of the terrorist acts. Um, and, and certainly, it, I don't think it would be out of order to condemn that. But in general... Well, this is the thing, Glenn. In the same way that historians now feel their task is to tell us what should have been done in the past, not what was done, but what should have been, uh, academics, instead of studying the way the world is, have sold themselves on the idea that their job is to tell us what it should be. And that's a much more dubious proposition, in my opinion. Yeah, I want to mention uh, Omar Bartov, my colleague, holds a chair, the Samuel Pizar Professorship in right. Holocaust and Genocide Studies in the History Department at Brown University. He's an Israeli. He's a veteran of the uh, Israeli Defense Forces. He's, you know, um, and, and he did give voice to the view that you summarize, uh, which is grave concern about the conduct of this campaign in Gaza that Israel is conducting in reprisal for the horrific attacks on civilians that Hamas orchestrated in uh, October. And, and if I may add, the grave questions which the Israeli conduct of the war raises about what the Israeli government's objective actually is. Yeah, I was going to get to that. I mean, they're yeah, killing no, right. a lot of people. Right. They are, you know, courting off and, uh, uh, you know, forcing to flee and bombarding and, and whatnot. And he says, what's the goal here at the end of the day? What are right. you trying to accomplish? How much of this is revenge? How much of this feels all too much like the early phases of something that people could use the G word, that is genocide, to describe? He's willing to go there. He's a s scholar of yes. genocide, of genocide studies. And, and he, 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 he stopped short of accusing Israel of genocide in Gaza. But he says some of the preconditions are troublingly evident. And this is something that it's not too late for us to, if we would use our voice as a historian, he is using his, warn against. Uh, well, uh, I personally, yeah. and actually I've just shared this with him. I haven't heard from what he'll say, but I, I am disturbed by the uh, promiscuous use of the word genocide in all sorts of contexts. And anytime a lot of people are killed, somebody is going to pull it out. Yeah. Uh, what and thus, and I don't think there is a goal of the Israeli government to kill two million people in Gaza. No. However, based on the statements of members of the Israeli government, and based on the way they're waging the campaign by making most of the population of Gaza homeless, 
there is a very legitimate question as to whether they are trying to bring about the ethnic cleansing of Gaza. And that, I think, is something that the world should not tolerate. Yeah, and I pose this to in re- response to that set of observations to Omer. Yeah. Well, is the right wing, uh, which he is very alarmed about, and the Netanyahu government of settler, of, you know, uh, ideology and Jewish supremacist inclinations, really representative of the Israeli population? They are a kind of critical margin in a coalition government that it needs their support to stay in power. But uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of n- thinking contrary to that in the Israeli uh, population. So, so there's that, and you know they. I, but uh, President. Former President Claudine Gay got caught in that uh, crossfire, no? Yeah, I think that's true. Again, what? I I prefer not to focus on her. She's just one individual who's part of something much, much bigger. Yeah. But I, I want to say, I mean, <laughs> you're at a congressional hearing. Uh, Elise Stefanik, uh, this uh, arch-Trumpian, uh, you know. Yep. Attack dog comes at you. This is a moment of truth. You don't look at your notes. You don't, you don't recite a mantra. You spontaneously engage the moment. It, it, it's, it's, it's a question of, in effect, the quality of leadership and the, and the quality of the person in that moment. Uh, and I don't think she measured up in that moment. Obviously, she, what she did was not effective. Now, again, I think. The problem was that she felt it necessary to make some sort of authoritative comment on what was going on in the first place. Um, now, she could have disputed Stefanik on, on, on the, the logic Stefanik was using. In other words, she could have said, I do not accept the idea that intifada is a call for genocide. Okay, we're, not, right. we're not going to punish people for advocating intifada. Okay, we know that there are many people on our campus who sympathize with the Palestinian cause. That's the right to the Constitution, et cetera. At the same time, we don't want Jewish students or any Jews or any students to be harassed or doxxed or whatever based on their views. She, she could have said that kind of thing. She could have said, when somebody actually calls for the genocide of Jews, we'll deal with it. I haven't heard right. that yet. And, right. and so on. But anyway, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, we should talk about the book, but... <laughs> Please, I I, want to ask you about uh, your, your, you know, just written a a book focused around uh, the U.S. presidency and the remarks that people make from that uh, lofty position. And we're in the midst of a campaign, we're in the campaign year. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. the Supreme Court is going to hear challenges to the oh, Colorado disqualification of Trump from the primary ballot based on the fact that he supported insurrection, interpreting the 14th Amendment, uh, the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, which I'm sure you're intimately familiar with. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what do you make of that? I have taken the position, I'll just say for the record, that I don't know from the 14th Amendment. I'm not going to claim to be a historian or a constitutional lawyer. Uh, I can see that there'd be arguments. But what seems very clear to me is that if you disqualify Donald Trump from participation in the 2024 election based upon that, you're making a grave mistake in terms of the legitimacy of our institutions. You're, you're, it's not just that you're giving ammunition to Trump, to trumpet that he's being a victim. You're basically telling the electorate that the Democrats are going to continue to govern the country and that, you know, the strongest opponent to their to their program is not going to be allowed to stand. And, and that strikes me as a disaster for the country. Please tell me where I'm wrong. All right, guys, let's talk about life insurance. We are starting a new year. And it's a good time to tackle financial planning tasks that are part of your to-do list, but somehow never get done, like shopping for life insurance. 
You should start your new year knowing you found the right life insurance to protect your family with Policy Genius. Getting life insurance today means you'll have peace of mind for the rest of 2024 and beyond. So if something were to happen to you, your family can recover expenses while getting back on their feet. Expenses like mortgage payments or the cost of sending your kids to college. Luckily, Policy Genius helps you compare your options from top companies, and their team of licensed experts is on hand to help talk you through it. I know what I'm talking about here. I am a man of a certain age. I have five children and six grandchildren and a younger, wonderful woman who is my wife. Now, I've got life insurance because I'm employed by Brown University, but I am about to retire. And when I do, I'm going to be in the market for a term policy. It feels good to be covered, to know that if something were to happen, the people that you love, your children, your spouse will be okay financially. Policy Genius's technology makes it easy to compare life insurance quotes from America's top insurers in just a few clicks to find your lowest price. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job, as mine will not do. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for $1 million of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Policy Genius has licensed award-winning agents who can help you find the best fit for your needs. They work for you, not the insurance companies. That means they don't have an incentive to recommend one insurer over another, so you can trust their guidance. No wonder they have thousands of five-star reviews on Google and Trustpilot. So save yourself some time and money. And give your family a financial safety net with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and to see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. All right. Um, <laughs> l- let me say that. Uh, some of what I say may be in the devil's advocate role, which you uh, enjoy so much yourself. But actually, okay, my blog, where I try to post every week, is called historyunfolding.com. That's all one word, historyunfolding.com. I blogged about this, and I did so with the help of a short article about the history of that clause, which was very, very good, and explained how that clause was applied after the Civil War, as it was. And what the clause said was that anybody who had participated in an insurrection, no, I'm sorry, anybody who had first taken an oath to support the Constitution and who had then participated in an insurrection was ineligible to hold any federal or state office. End of story. And they could only be relieved of that um, disability by a two-thirds vote in Congress, which in fact is what happened. In 1872, only a few years later, when almost all the former Confederates were pardoned, in effect, by two-thirds majority of Congress. It was a big step towards the end of Reconstruction. But meanwhile, uh, they had all accepted that, and they identified six or seven cases where people had tried to take some office who had been part of the rebellion, and they were disallowed from doing so by state courts or by federal courts or in one case by a state official. And they did not have to be convicted of insurrection, you see, because disqualification from office isn't a criminal punishment. So what I said in the blog is the originalists on the Supreme Court are going to have a problem with this case because what the Colorado court did and what the official in Maine did is totally within the precedent of what was done after the Civil War. Now, here's the problem. The circumstances matter. There wasn't any doubt at the time of the passage of the 14th Amendment 
that we had had a huge insurrection and there wasn't any doubt it would have been part of it. I mean, anybody who served in the Confederate Army is a Confederate government, obviously. It was a prima facie case. Things aren't quite as clear now, obviously. Plus, nobody could deny, even if you were sad the South lost or whatever, that, that there had been this war and that they had lost. Okay, so that was straightforward. Now, today, that's not so straightforward because we don't have the same political consensus about what had happened and who won and who turned out to be an insurrectionist because they lost instead of a freedom fighter if they had won. Now, this is all part of the collapse of our institutions, which I talked about in the latter stages of the book in connection with the election of Trump. Uh, Trump was a total outsider, and in 2016, neither political party could come up with somebody who could beat him. That showed that our political order was in a state of collapse. And in some ways, that's continued. In some ways, it's gotten worse. The great tragedy was that Mitch McConnell, in January of 2021, lost his nerve, was not willing to rally enough Republican senators, as I'm sure he could have, to convict Trump in the second impeachment trial, which would have ruled him out as a candidate for all time. You know, you without think he should have. You think he should oh. have been defeated? Of course, I, I think he should have been convicted. And yes, he was clearly guilty. I mean. He should have been convicted, and we would have been through with that. But they didn't do that. So th this is the problem we face. This is a lot of, of what states of the uh, union. I'm sorry is to about. interrupt. I'm, yes. I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I want, and I certainly want to sure. know what states of the union is about. What yes. was he guilty of that ought to have been ratified by the second impeachment? What was he, he guilty was, of? He was guilty of illegally trying to overturn the results of the election, including the incitement of the insurrection. And if that isn't a high crime or misdemeanor, I don't know what is, in my opinion. Okay. And, and, let's, and remember, a majority of the Senate agreed with that. That's not a trivial fact, even though you need two-thirds of the Senate to convict. It clearly was not a trivial accusation. Again, again forgive yes. my naivete, and I maybe... Okay maybe expose myself to certain kind of criticisms, but what were the high crimes and misdemeanors of which Trump was guilty in his resistance to ratification of the November 2020 election? The attempt, uh, the attempt in many ways to overturn the result of the election in about half a dozen states and to get Mike Pence to take an unconstitutional step to refuse to certify the results of the election and the incitement of the mob to go into the Capitol and try to intimidate the Congress or whatever into doing his bidding. Peacefully and patriotically assemble. That didn't look to me to be peaceful. But that, those were his words. He didn't say go down there and uh, make a reckless of things. Uh, he used words like fight and whatever. I, I mean, I haven't prepared to full bill of particulars here, but uh, I think what he wanted was clear enough. So... Also, his reaction to it when it happened made that clear. His long delay in making any statement. Okay, well. All right. Uh, yeah, I, we can leave that. I, I, I don't want to okay. get into a uh, uh, but All right, let me, let me use it to segue into States of the Union, though, as I wanted to. Yeah, please okay. do. Right. It's a critical part of the job of the president to maintain confidence confidence in our institutions and in our government. And this is what now presidents have not been able to do for various reasons. And that's why we're in the mess we're in. But, but, but go ahead. We can start off this, this discussion of the book any way you want to. And I know you have some ideas yourself. No, well, I was going to ask you some kind of meta question. So you decide sure. to go, tell go the history. Go for you're it. Gonna, you know, you remember, um, who's the guy, People's History of the United States? Uh, Howard Zinn, yes. Howard Zinn, yeah. Well, you've got a president's uh, I view history of the United States. Right. Those couldn't possibly be different. Where are movement politics and where are the masses and, and, and where's the percolation of things from the bottom right. up? And uh, it, it seems exactly the kind of thing that uh, the hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go, people. We're right. complaining about, you're going to tell the history of the United States through the words of the president? Yes, uh, indeed. And I think it worked out uh, quite well. 
Do you know? Uh, yes. All right, let me quote the Constitution. This is from All the right. first page of the text of the book. The president shall from time to time give to the Congress information to the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures, measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. Now, here's the point, Clint. We have a government. We have an executive branch. We have a president. We only have one president at any time. With all due respect to Howard Zinn, any of our listeners, anybody who's lost faith in the government, I'm sorry, sometimes this drives me crazy too, but there is nobody whose opinion is more important than the president of the United States about our public affairs. That is simply a fact because he has not only the power, but the duty to set the agenda for the country and to explain what he wants to do about whatever problems there are and where we want to go. I mean, he may be right, he may be wrong, but nobody else can do that. Now, to answer your question about popular movements, they enter the story when they get big enough to force their attention upon the president and the political system and to force them and react. And you see that happen in the book again and again and again. Uh, the civil rights movement being an absolutely classic example of that. Uh, and, and, you know, it's Harry Truman, who no longer gets any credit, any credit for this, but it's Truman in early 1948 who puts civil rights, as we understand them today, on the national agenda and uh, who, who rails against discrimination, against denial of voting, desegregates the armed forces, uh, calls for various reforms, doesn't take on segregation head on, not yet, but, but that's coming. And it becomes a big part of his campaign. Can you get a bill through the Congress? No, not yet. But it's on the agenda. And then, uh, meanwhile, the civil rights movement is pursuing its legal strategy, which culminates in Brown versus Board of Education. That forces Eisenhower to take some kind of position. Actually, he's very reserved about it and somewhat mealy-mouthed about it. He says, we have to obey the law. Now, in Little Rock, when the governor of Arkansas stops integration in Central High, he does call out the National Guard to integrate. But again, he just says, we have to obey the law. And we have testimony from civil rights leaders, Roy Wilkins, who met with Eisenhower repeatedly and who were very disappointed in his attitude. But then Kennedy comes in and he says something that Eisenhower had never said. He says, Brown versus Board Education was right not only legally, but morally. This was wrong that had to be corrected. And he starts talking about it in a completely different way. Meanwhile, you've got the new phase of the civil rights movement, civil disobedience and so on. And that culminates uh, in with, uh, well, then you have the integration of the University of Mississippi and the University of Alabama. And meanwhile, the, the Birmingham campaign by Dr. King and all the violence associated that, with that. And then suddenly in June of 1963, in an incredible week, one of the most incredible weeks in American history, another reason as well. Kennedy goes on television. Anybody can find this on YouTube. And I, I implore you to do it. It's only about 10 minutes. He says, we have to end segregation. We have to end segregation in public accommodations. This is not the way we would want to be treated, to be kept out of restaurants, to be kept out of hotels. This is wrong. We have to do something about it, and we're going to do something about it. And the big civil rights bill is introduced. So, so that is how, uh, that's one striking case, of, and you can trace it also way through the book. That's the point of the book, how it gets to the top level and how we get something done. Okay, so the utterances at these occasions, State of the Union addresses and, uh, and other, other major presidential addresses, addresses yeah. are yeah. occasions for us to get a, a glimpse, a window onto what the... Uh, thought processes are of the chief executive, the head of the government, and in that way, provide us with an, um, a, a way in uh, to understanding the historical dynamics unfolding. But I, I mean, I have to tell you, I have to force myself to listen to the president's deliver states of the union addresses. Uh, they're, they're so filled with platitude and, you know, all these manipulative devices and they're so obviously transparently uh, political. 
uh, that I, I, I view them with a grain of salt. Where am I, where am I wrong in that? I, I don't expect, I, I expect to find uh, cliche. Uh, I, I expect, uh, you know, uh, rhetoric and, and uh, a kind of ideological thing. I, I don't, I don't expect to get any real information from them. So, you know, what am I missing? Well, I don't disagree with you. And actually, I think it is a theme of the book that the quality of the addresses as political governmental documents has really fallen off a lot. And Mm. a lot of this has to do with things that aren't even discussed anymore. Uh, For instance, one of the basic features of every State of the Union address probably until Reagan, was a brief survey of the state of the federal budget. You know, do we have a surplus or we have a deficit? What are we going to do with that? And this was all taken very seriously. Now, because we have, uh, now Bill Clinton, and, and he's very underrated about this, you know, he actually did manage to balance the budget, the last president to do it. And he talked about that. Since then, hardly any president ever specifically gives you a quick statement of the national accounts. It, it's too embarrassing. The deficit's too big or whatever. So they just don't talk about it. And, and that's real dereliction of duty, in my, in my opinion. In addition, there are certain rhetorical or, shall I say, theatrical tricks that have worked their way in. And one of them, which I think started with Reagan, and I, I do trace it in the book, is this custom of uh, pointing out average Americans in the gallery who somehow substantiate a point that the president is going to make. And yeah. uh, that, that reached its apotheosis under Trump, uh, where he had a really extraordinary collection of people who, who uh, well, I don't want to go into the details. It's, it's too pathetic. But anyway, uh, he did a lot of it, but Biden does it too. And th- does this really mean that American government is getting effective? No, it doesn't. But I would say, Glenn, that within all that political verbiage and so on, even in the recent addresses, are facts about what the government is doing and what the government wants to do. And and again, I I mean, those are very important things for us to know. I don't care how you feel about the guy. I don't care how how badly, how bad you think his rhetoric is. He's the one with the power. And we have to know what he's trying to do and what he wants to do. And, and that is buried in there to a large extent, even now. Okay. So we've had 46 presidents and yes. counting. Yep. Uh, three of them on my reading of your book stand out for you and are deserving of chapters uh, all to themselves. That's George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Uh, do I correctly perceive that you see them as head and shoulders, historically speaking, above others who have served in the office in terms of uh, their significance in American history? Well, uh, Washington set the pattern and he defined some very important issues. Yes. Um, and it's very interesting. Uh, Washington begins something which has gone on one way or another ever since, although. And it's still happening. Which was, our government represents something new, something different. It's an experiment, Republican government, the people rule. Can we make it work? This is a huge responsibility, not only for us, but for the whole world. And subsequent presidents uh, repeated that again and again. And Washington raised some questions, especially in his farewell address, but not only there, that are with us to this day about how to make it work. Well, one way to make it work is not to get carried away by passion, okay, to use our heads. It's not to let sexual loyalties take over, et cetera, et cetera. And all these have remained important ever since, and they're critical right now. Lincoln obviously had to deal with secession. Lincoln was very blunt about this, too. This is how he began his rhetoric at the beginning of the Civil War, not about slavery, but about the survival of free government. He said, this is the supreme test of our government, this attempt to break away from it. 
if we allow this, it shows that our kind of government is too weak to survive. And that will be the end of it, not only here, but all over the world. And that's why we have to defeat this rebellion. And then gradually, he builds the abolition of slavery into it as a necessary tactic, but also to, to solve the whole question. And there, actually, that's one of the places where I was very surprised by what I found as to various proposals that Lincoln made about how slavery could be done away with gradually. I think that was partly a political move, but he was trying to give the South every chance to come back peacefully, which they would not do. Um, so, excuse me for interrupting. Sure. But you don't. You think there was some merit to Nikki Haley's reticence to invoke slavery oh, in no. response to a question? No, no I merit. don't think. I don't think that at all. I think the point is okay. that Lincoln, great politician that he was, uh, and and while he probably knew from the beginning that victory in the war would mean the end of slavery, he knew that was not the smart way in early 1861 to pitch the war partly because it was so critical to keep those other slaveholding states, Delaware, Maryland, yeah. um, Kentucky, Missouri, yeah. in the Union. And, and he did. Um, so it was the way to create the broad coalition. Um, but it was definitely about slavery. And at the end, it, 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 the only presidential address I quoted in full was Lincoln's second inaugural, because it's short and it's such a magnificent document. And there he says, we all knew, listen up, Nikki Haley, from the beginning, that somehow this was about slavery. Um, and, and it was, clearly. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, that is the amazing achievement of Lincoln uh, and to keep the country together. He had a lot of help from brilliant military leadership. Now, Roosevelt, what he did, well, actually, I'm going to build something else into this that we discussed in one of our earlier meetings. My friends, uh, the late William Strauss and Neil Howe, was still very much alive, identified this 80-year cycle in American history, uh, beginning with a revolution in the Constitution, which created a consensus about what America was about. And that consensus lasts as long as the people who are young adults at that point are still alive. Then there are threats to it. And by 1860, it's broken down completely, and Lincoln has to create the new consensus, partly by violence, and that's what he did. Now, Roosevelt is in the parallel situation coming into the midst of the Depression when the post-Civil War free market, you know, plutocratic structure is broken down, and he's going to replace it. And the, now, Roosevelt also had radio, and the way he laid out the problem before the country in 1933 as a combination of an economic problem and a problem of values, a moral problem, was just amazing. And the way he managed to stick to that and keep his momentum going at home for eight years, based on the idea of creating a different kind of America with less inequality, with better opportunities for everybody, with Social Security, with uh, minimum wages and maximum hours, et cetera, et cetera, was amazing. Yes, his record fighting the Depression was erratic, Things went pretty well for four years. Then there was another recession. Things were beginning to get... And then comes along the greatest war in human history, which he had seen coming. I, I have no doubt. And that comes from another book I wrote. But he didn't talk about it until he had to. And then he has to organize the country for this war, transform the economy to pay for it. And he does that. And he prepares for the new post-war world. And he wins the war in the alliance with Britain and the Soviet Union. That's why I said those were the most 12, the 12 most eventful years of American history, because of the transformation both at home and abroad. And the principles Roosevelt laid down remain our principles for uh, 35 years, more, until Reagan. And I did very explicitly say that, that yes, although I personally prefer Roosevelt to Reagan, they deserve to be compared based on their impact on the country in opposite directions. And that is proven because in both cases, their successors, even successors from the other party, did not fundamentally change what they had done, did not fundamentally challenge what they had done. Eisenhower did not challenge the New Deal. And uh, 
Okay, Reagan was succeeded by Bush, but then Clinton and Obama, both in State of the Union address, well, Clinton says the era of bigger government is over. Obama makes jokes about the ridiculous duplication of effort in the federal government. Uh, I, I mean, all of this now had become conventional wisdom. And, and that is a, a, a record of how influential Reagan was. Go ahead. Uh, I want to savor that point. Reagan was tremendously influential, partly in the evidence, by the way, in which uh, William Jefferson Clinton and Barack Hussein Obama yes. handled their brief when yes. they got to office. I, I was going to ask you about the financial crisis, 2008, 2009. Yes. Obama's coming into office. Uh, John McCain suspends his campaign so that he can, you know, focus on the et cetera. And uh, Occupy Wall Street uh, emerges as a as a protest movement against the bankers and the capitalism and so forth and so on. That was a moment fit for a kind of FDR leadership, but Barack Obama didn't supply it. Uh, would you agree with that? I would agree with that, and I would go much further. And this is a great illustration, too, of, of Strauss and Howe's scheme. Uh, in the wake of the Depression, we had serious financial reforms. We had the Glass-Steagall Act. We created the SEC. Also, because of the Depression and the World Wars, we had these very high marginal tax rates, which really did reduce inequality. I mean, rates going up to 90%, which that lasted until 1964. Now, a new generation grows up, led by people like Larry Summers, to quote a non-random person, and also uh, Ruben, uh, who didn't live through the Great Crash, didn't live through the Depression, and all they can see is how those old restrictions are holding back on things that financial institutions do, they could get bigger, they could be more effective, blah, blah, blah. So uh, it, it starts under Reagan, I think, but it continues under Clinton. And, and Glass-Steagall's repeared, repealed, we undo those reforms. The Fed also goes to sleep because they've never lived through a big crash. And suddenly we have a situation in 2008, which is very similar to 1929, really. Uh, I mean, it's not stocks, it's real estate, but it's hopeless over-leveraging, which puts the whole situation at risk. Now, as I say, Roosevelt, in that first inaugural, all anybody remembers is we have nothing but fear, but fear itself, because there's much more, says this is a problem of values. And it's the, it's the bad values of the money changers in the temple, he uses that phrase that have led it to this. And, and we need new values. And Obama didn't do anything like that. And Obama accepted the idea from Larry Summers and others that the system was still basically sound and that we just had to restore the liquidity in the financial system and everything would be all right. And he didn't take, well, he took some emergency measures, but they, they were nowhere near the level of what FDR did. Also, FDR and the New Deal did a lot to save people's farms and homes uh, when they were threatened with foreclosure. Obama, as I understand it, did very little along those lines. And the recovery, was, was quite slow, actually. And that helped cost the Democrats uh, the Congress. It didn't keep Obama from being reelected. But, but yes, that, you see, we, we've had crises. We've had three, at least now, in the last 25 years. We had 9-11. And George W. Bush, after 9-11, comes out in full Franklin Roosevelt post-Pearl Harbor mode. You know, yeah. this is a generational challenge. It's a worldwide struggle. This is to secure the peace of the world, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And he comes up with two wars that go very, very badly and that don't solve any real problems. Now, now this, instead of restoring confidence in government, undermines it. <clears throat> Obama, his handling of the financial crisis, uh, did not manage to... Um, really restored the confidence of a lot of the people who were not helped. There's another thing that's happened. Everything takes so long nowadays. I mean, going over Roosevelt and the New Deal, so many things he did, like the Civilian Conservation Corps, that had hundreds of thousands of young men back to work within months. Now, 
people forget this, but the made provisions of Obamacare didn't go into effect until after his second term had begun. And when they did go into effect, it was something of a screw up, you know, with the website and everything else. Uh, so a lot of the political gain from that was lost. The same thing has happened now to Biden over the infrastructure problem uh, program. Yeah, it's moving along, I suppose, but there haven't been a lot of big, great results, you know, a couple of hundred thousand people back to work or anything like that. And, the, and then we had the pandemic, which divided us still further. So this is where we really needed another dose of the Lincoln or FDR kind of leadership, and we haven't had it. Well, there's a lot there. I can hear some of my correspondents disputing this or that or the other, and they're wondering why I didn't argue with you about uh, the financial regulation questions and so on and so forth. But I don't think I necessarily disagree with you about it. Well, thank I mean, you. The, the country was <laughs> in a pickle. Uh, the accounts weren't adding up. We were in a uh, danger of, of financial collapse, and that's a real thing. That affects the real that's economy, right. employment, and incomes and so forth throughout the country. So something had to be done. Uh, but whereas uh, if you were uh, a uh, suburban, uh, newly uh, financed home buyer in uh, Las Vegas or somewhere and you couldn't pay your mortgage, you just got wiped out. But if you were a banker right. sitting uh, with uh, significant exposure, you got bailed out. And, you know, right. that's, that's kind of hard to swallow. Uh, but Obama did nearly lose that 20. I mean, he actually won comfortably in 2012, but co coming yes. into the election, there was a lot of question. His popularity went way down. They took the shellacking in 2010. Yes. And whatnot. And uh, he managed to get the political ship righted and uh, sail into a safe harbor in 2012. That's not at all clear that he would have done that if he had been more muscular, more FDR-like in uh, trying to... And, and where was the Congress? that he needed to, FDR had uh, uh, very strong support in the Congress for his program, Obama not so much. Well, not only that, uh, okay, the Democrats had nearly taken control of Congress in 1930 under Hoover. They did take control by a substantial margin in 32 because of all the emergency measures that had an effect. They gained seats in 36 and they, in 34, rather, they gained seats. And, and then they pass Social Security and the Wagner Act, uh, protecting unions. And then in 36, they gained even more seats. In fact, that's the only time in American history that uh, the same party has gained congressional seats in four elections in a row. And, and by the way, I want to make this clear to readers. Um, election results are the way we keep score in this country and how the president is doing. This, this lets you know how what he has done has gone over with the people. But anyway, now, I think the other thing that happened with Obama is that in his first two years, he didn't try to mobilize all the anger in the country against the bankers or against anybody else. It's not in his personality. It's kind of a tragic flaw because in a way it's a good thing. And in fact, Lincoln was that like that to an amazing extent in a very different situation. I mean, there was all sorts of violence furious rhetoric flying around during the Civil War, but Lincoln did not use that kind of rhetoric, ever. Uh, but anyway, uh, the Tea Party instead managed to mobilize the anger and, and turn yeah. it against Obama, and he lost the Congress, just the way Clinton lost the House in 1994 after two years, and the way Biden lost the House last time around after two years, and that was the end of any attempt to make any more sweeping changes. I remember as we get to the end here, Nancy Pelosi quite uh, ostentatiously ripping the text yes. of uh, Trump's uh, State yes. of the Union address. Yes. Now, the last time I checked, the betting markets have him as the uh, odds-on favorite to be reelected as president of the United States. He's way ahead in the Republican primaries, and uh, he's outpolling Biden in some critical uh, states. Uh, what are we headed towards here uh, in, in terms of presidential politics and, and <laughs> American political history? Unprecedented territory, it looks like to me. It is unprecedented territory. And 
I'm very frightened that Trump might win. I am shocked, frankly, that Biden is going to run again. I don't think he should. I don't think anybody wants to elect somebody who's going to be 82 years old by the time he takes the oath. I'm not going to speculate. But, but again, Biden, you see, I don't understand what's going on in this White House. Um, the effective presidents, and this also refers to Nixon, actually, before Watergate. And, and one of the things that surprised me writing the book was how well Nixon came off in it until Watergate. But Nixon, Reagan, FDR, Kennedy, they keep themselves in the forefront of the public eye. They keep everybody waiting to see what they're going to say about whatever the issue is. And Biden isn't doing that. And part of the problem is the way media has changed. I mean, when we had three networks, the president could ask for time on all three networks and go on the air, and most of the people would watch him. Now, now the presidents yeah. don't even bother to ask for that anymore. And uh, not only that, I'm really shocked uh, by this. And I don't know exactly what's going on here. Biden gave this big speech last week about Trump's yeah. threat to democracy in, Val Val in Valley Forge. That was in the New York Times, I think on page A7 or A10. Didn't make the front wow. page. That, that, that's incredible in a way, but, but that's where they are. Now, now, again, I think you see what's happened to historians has happened to the media. The, the media, they may have disagreed with the people in power, major media, but they understood their first obligation was to let us know what the people in power were saying, power were saying and doing. They don't feel that anymore. They feel their job is to tell us what should be happening in the media, and not only on the op-ed page either. And, and that is another thing that I think has really weakened our democracy. I, I mean, this book is, to some extent, a, a lament for the democracy we have lost, uh, for which I do have great respect. Okay, well, I'll let that be the last word, David. Uh, okay. The book is States of the Union, A History of the United States Through Presidential Addresses, 1789 to 2023. Um, my guest has been David Kaiser, a uh, historian extraordinaire and a prolific writer, uh, and uh, author of the blog History Unfolding, uh, which we can find where, David? At historyunfolding.com. That's a good place. Yes, it so, is. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks very much, Steve. And the book is available on Amazon and all other major outlets. And Glenn, it's always a very great pleasure to be here. My pleasure. Thanks again.